Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you are listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Hal Hodson, technology correspondent at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show... The potential benefits of young blood. Something in the blood of the young animal is improving the sort of rejuvenating capacity of the old one. We have as our guest this week the author and academic Tim Wu. He explains how and why companies are constantly vying for our attention. Imagine you had a pocket full of gold dust and the the gold was always leaking out of your pocket. That's a little what it's like. It's like a currency that's constantly being spent. And if you like roller coasters and virtual reality, then you'll be happy to hear that these two great feats of human ingenuity are being merged. It's becoming a lot more common, and a lot of theme parks are seeing this as a really great way to have a cost-effective way to refurbish these old rides. First, though, we'll explore an idea being mooted in the nascent field of so-called anti-aging medicine. This technique involves introducing young blood into that of the old. It's been done in mice, and now clinical trials, of some sort at least, are moving to humans. Here to tell us more is our science correspondent, Tim Cross. Hi, Al. So where did the idea of merging blood systems of two creatures come from in the first place? Well, it's actually older than you might think. It dates back to the middle of the 1800s and a French uh, biologist called Paul Baer. He gave it the name parabiosis, and basically he did it on rats. And the way it works is you take two animals, you sort of shave their flanks, and you cause like a deliberate wound to both of them. You then stitch them together at the site of the wound, and if you leave them stitched together for long enough, their blood vessels will regrow, and in the process of regrowing will merge. And so you'll end up with this weird sort of mixture of an animal that's that's two separate animals stuck together with two hearts pumping blood around a circulatory system that's now shared between them. And was Mr. Bear doing this just to see what happened or was there a reason beyond that? It's slightly lost to the mists of time. I think it, it was sort of partly that, but the technique was more common in the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s and people used it for all kinds of weird stuff. So there was one guy who used it to test the theory that tooth decay is caused by sugar in your food. So he got two rats that were genetically very closely related or possibly even identical because the procedure works best on animals like that, stitched them together. And so now they share genes and they share blood and they share a circulatory system. So you're trying to hold all your factors kind of constant. And then he fed one head of this sort of two-headed animal with ordinary rat chow and the other one with sugar-laced rat chow. And it was only the sort of head that was eating the sugar-laced rat chow that got cavities. So next time you go to your dentist, you can thank the weird people who were stitching rats together 70 years ago for the advice they give you. Okay, so this is now moving into looking at whether the same kinds of effects are observed in humans. We're not stitching humans together in order to do this. But before we get into that, what are the potential positives of doing this for human beings? Back in the 70s, there was one paper where they did parabiosis on rats that noted that if you do it with young animals and old animals, if you stitch them together, the old animals live several months longer than you might otherwise expect. Uh, That was just sort of one result and 
because it's a bit gruesome, basically, like parabiosis kind of fell away as a research technique. But it's back in the news now because people are going back again and looking at those longevity results. So since about 2005, there's been a steady drip of papers showing some quite impressive things. Like if you take, you know, an old mouse and a young mouse and you stitch them together like this, and then if you injure the old mouse's muscles, they regenerate much better and much faster than you would expect from an old animal, much more like a young one's would. You can get similar results for liver tissue. You can get more neurons forming in in their brains. You can get them doing better on various cognitive tests and so on. And so the assumption is something in the blood of the young animal is improving the sort of rejuvenating capacity of the old one. And it sounds like we don't know exactly what that is, but there must be some kind of hypotheses going on for, for how this works. Yeah, we don't. And this is one of, the, one of the sort of big questions. So the sort of default assumption is it's something or probably lots of different things in the blood, hormones, proteins, that kind of stuff. And whatever they are, they are affecting stem cells in the older animals. You know, me, you, all animals keep a population of stem cells sitting around to sort of repair any damage that we suffer. And the older we get, the less effectively that works. This, the suggestion is that there's some signaling molecule or probably lots of signaling molecules in the blood that are resetting those stem cells to a more youthful state. But there are lots of interesting twists as well, so it works backwards to some extent. When you hook these two animals up, the young mouse gets a little bit decrepified by the old blood. You know, its regeneration starts to work less well. There's even been one paper which tried it cross-species, and they gave umbilical cord blood from human babies to mice and found that the mice that they'd given it to did better on tests that involved, you know, running mazes and memory tests and so on. So that, that's the main hypothesis. There are sort of other things as well. It might be the old animal basically has access to the young animal's organs. So its blood is getting filtered and washed by the young kidneys and young livers. You know, maybe it's that. You don't seem to get too much migration of like actual cells between the animals, apart from red blood cells, obviously. Some people think that immune cells might be playing a role because they control inflammation and inflammation's implicated in aging generally. And it, there's something really interesting going on. Basically, we're not really sure exactly what it is. So there's something about young blood and there is now quite a lot of attention being paid and spent on trying to figure out what that something is. So how might we actually derive those benefits or take advantage of whatever that is, assuming we ever find it in human beings? Although we don't really know what's going on, there are several studies going on to see if this stuff works in humans. And like you said, it, it would probably be a little hard to persuade an ethics board that you should be allowed to stitch human beings together. So instead, they're doing it with blood transfusions. So it's not a perfect copy. The idea is you take blood, you know, just like you would in a, in a hospital, transfuse it into, into somebody else and see if it provides benefits. One company, for instance, called Alcahest is doing this with Alzheimer's disease. And so if this does work, how might it become a, a treatment that exists in the real world? A lot of the people who work on this in the lab are kind of reluctant to talk about, you know, anti-aging and they say it's all a bit premature and, you know, it's a field that's, there's a lot of hope and a lot of hype kind of thing. But assuming this does work, then you, you have got a bit of a problem scaling it because, you know, there are 40 odd million people with Alzheimer's around the world that we know of now and probably more than that who are, who are undiagnosed. And you can imagine what the demand would be for something, you know, that did this, that, that gave you the rejuvenating powers of a young, a young person, you know, even if you sort of had mandatory bleeding for everyone under 25, you know, three times a month or something, there just isn't enough blood to go around. So what, what the companies are trying to do, again, a bit like the people in the lab, is to try and see if they can isolate specific factors, and then the hope is you can make them synthetically and sell them like you would with any other, any other drug. 
So the secrets of youth not delivered via the blood of the young, but unlocked from the blood of the young. We hope so, anyway. Okay, great. Tim, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Hal. Now, I'm sure many of you listeners will have thoughts about this idea. If so, please send them through to us by email to radio at economist.com. Next, our guest today is Tim Wu, author, activist, professor of law at Columbia University, and the man who pioneered the now ubiquitous phrase net neutrality. His most recent book, The Attention Merchants, unpacks the way our attention is being constantly sought after and commoditized. He's here to discuss whether we should be worried about this. Tim, we're now absolutely flooded with choice for where to direct our attention. Is this diluting advertisers' ability or fortifying it? Kind of both at the same time. It's kind of a a bad situation for everyone because on on the one hand, uh, we are being constantly deluged with efforts to get our attention to resell to advertisers. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, there's a screen somewhere or, or something at you trying to get your attention. On the other hand, advertisers feel increasingly desperate to try to reach people. You know, there's so much stock out there. And and so we're in this weird race where, in fact, they're both desperate, trying as hard as ever to get to us. Our time is all used up. And and frankly, in some ways, nobody's winning. (laughs) It almost would be better if we agreed to watch ads for for 20 minutes at the beginning of the day and then had the rest of the day to ourselves or something. Uh, Obviously, people try to avoid ads all the time. And so the advertisers get more desperate. So we're kind of locked in this, this terrible situation, which the result is, I think, just a lot of draining of mental resources. And not even for that much money. You know, this is part of the economy, but it's not a huge part of the economy. But it, I think, has had a huge drain on, on, frankly, our human resource, us. Now, your book takes us all the way through, I mean, you even talk about advertising in ancient Rome, but the real start is in New York with the first newspapers that ran on very low prices for a copy of the paper, but with advertising. Yeah, this man, Benjamin Day, who is not famous, not a household name, nonetheless made this enormous invention, which has changed all of our lives, which is ad-supported media. A newspaper sold for cheap that makes its real money from advertising. And that economic model, where the reader is actually the product, has transformed, frankly, our existence, because it creates a business model where the extraction of attention is the goal, and that really does change how we live. Is there a fundamental difference between what Google and Facebook do compared to what, you know, it was the New York Sun, wasn't it? Yeah. No, I don't think so in its most basic form. You know, they're essentially a broker who is harvesting this this commodity or a resource, which is human attention, and reselling it to another set of buyers, the advertisers. So I believe that the business model invented in 1832 is basically the same thing that Google has. Now there, there's innovations. Google is much more precise, for example, as to how much it's harvesting and whether people are clicking. You know, in the old days, and frankly, for most of advertising history, the old joke is, well, you know, 50% of your advertising is wasted, but you don't know which 50%. But Google knows exactly, you know, and so does Facebook, who's watching what and, and why. Now, it's clear from reading your book that there are some upsides to advertising. For instance, new products that are useful, you know, I don't know, washing machines would not have taken up as fast as they did were it not for advertising and presumably lots of other useful products. So the question then becomes, where is the balance between spreading useful innovation and really useful news, useful knowledge, and co-opting attention for not useful things? And how how can we reach that balance? Yeah, I think that's a really deep and and great question. So I will agree with you that there is this incredibly important function 
provided by advertising, which is information. You know, even in, in elections, people need to know who the candidates are. Um, a new movie, a new product. The amount of advertising we absorb goes way beyond that basic informational function. A huge amount of it is trying to brand products. So that's a completely different function. But I, I, I'm not so much concerned with advertising as I am in the sort of fallout or secondary costs of advertising, which is the amount of attention, you know, to support that idea that you want to tell people about products that is, say, commercialized or used. So Facebook, in order to maximize revenue, does everything it can to have you spend as much time as possible on Facebook. You know, a series of, of tricks, manipulations, erasing of normal stopping cues, all these things to make you almost addicted. Frankly, not almost, actually addicted to going back and spending hours that you might have otherwise spent otherwise. And that is what I think is the fallout of this model. We need some advertising. I, I don't deny that. What I am concerned about is just essentially us losing control over our own time and attention and almost losing the ability to do what we want to do because I don't know if you've had this experience, but like you sit down in front of your computer, you're like, I'm going to maybe write a story or I'm going to write one email and all of a sudden like three hours go by. That is a problem. And that's a problem I'm worried about. So there are these new, somewhat addictive medias. Uh, where does the responsibility fall on control? I mean, you could certainly argue that it's entirely up to the individual to control their own consumption of Twitter and Facebook and even their email. So first of all, I agree. I think most of us are nursing one or more digital addictions, tech addictions. You know the way the Victorians in the 19th century, they you know sort of casually took cocaine or opium and they, you know, no big deal. I just kind of enjoy it. I think we're a little bit like that with tech. Like I think we've not focused really on how truly addictive these things are. Ask yourself seriously, am I free from addiction to tech? And you're probably not free. So whose responsibility is it? I think there's a dual responsibility. I do believe strongly the individual bears a lot of the responsibility. But I also think the designers of these technologies have some ethical responsibility to at least think about the fact that they are designing stuff that's as addictive as crack cocaine. And, you know, a lot of people in Silicon Valley, their self-described mission is to make the world a better place. But their business model has led them to do a lot of stuff that I think is pretty questionable. It sounds like it's on these platforms to at least think about how they deliver their, their services. Have you thought about any solutions for this? Solution is a change of business model. I mean, for one thing, I don't know how far Silicon Valley thinks it can take the advertising model. It's working well for two companies, mm -hmm. Google and Facebook. What about everyone else? And even for those companies, you know, if we hold them to their standard of trying to make the world a better place, which is what they say they're trying to do, I think uh, they should think hard about whether the business model they have is leading them in the wrong directions. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be impossible to move to a paid business model. It would be a challenge, but I think it would allow them to create products that actually served people as loyal tools as opposed to we're always in the service of two masters. You talk about harvesting attention as if it was a thing that can be moved around. And that made me think, well, data you can harvest and move around and process, but you can't really harvest attention. It feels much more like an address space. It's, it's out there. Ultimately, it's, it's me and my senses somewhere in the world. So... I just wanted to sort of push back a little on harvesting as a word. I, I, it's quite a political word now, especially with, you know, data harvesting, all the talk about surveillance capitalism. And it seems to me that attention is not really a resource that gets harvested. Rights to it get bought and sold. So on my academic side, I've been trying to understand what attention is as a commodity or a resource. And one of its unusual features, if you think of it as a currency... <laughs> 
is it's like a currency that needs to constantly be spent. So imagine you had a pound in your hand every second that disappeared and you had to spend it. That's what attention's like. And if you take it that way, then I think harvesting works. You can't hold on, you can't store it. It would be nice if you could put your attention in some kind of attention battery and then <laughs> pull it out later and read a whole book or something. Here's a metaphor I use. Imagine you had a pocket full of gold dust and the, the gold was always leaking out of your pocket. That would mean everywhere you went is very valuable. And that's why every store would want to kind of lure you in with free sweets or drinks or whatever. That, that's a little what it's like. It's also more valuable in the aggregate. It's like data in that sense. As you aggregate a huge amount of it, it becomes more valuable. You know, one person's attention, not that valuable. But when you talk about millions of people, hundreds of millions, and suddenly you really have something of, of enormous political and commercial value. Tim Wu, thank you very much for coming on the show. Sure. Finally, a trip to the theme park. No matter how popular they are, many rides eventually fall into disrepair. Yet they are often repainted and revamped with a couple of new twists and turns to boot. But several recently refurbished roller coasters have an entirely new addition, virtual reality. So what can we expect as these two great technologies collide? Here to explain more is science writer Erin Winnick. So Erin, did you get to try out any VR roller coasters during your reporting? Sadly, I didn't get to ride any myself, but I did get to watch some of the video from it. Uh, I'm from Florida originally, so I actually got to ride some of the roller coasters before they've been revamped. But I'm hoping to one day go back to Florida and try it out myself. So are there any challenges with, you know, integrating roller coasters and VR? It doesn't seem like an intuitively good combination. So how does it work? Yeah, most people would assume that VR, which causes nausea for some people, and roller coasters, which causes nausea for some people, together might not be the best combination, but actually it helps mitigate some of the nausea that VR can cause because some of the conflicts that it's caused from VR is due to the fact that you're actually not moving when you see movement in the VR goggles. And so how do they sync the roller coaster with the VR? Yeah, so a lot of the VR firms that are hired on to revamp these roller coasters actually map out the coaster before creating the VR experience. So they'll send these IMU sensors all around the track that then are used to create this map of the whole coaster track. And then after the ride is created, these sensors are then added onto these roller coaster cars that are constantly compared back to the original data that was created. And this allows them to sync up the VR footage that all the riders are seeing with what they've already recorded and what they want the riders to experience. So where is this happening at the moment, Erin? It's been getting a lot more prominent. It started out with different amusement parks trying out some Samsung Gear VR headsets and things like that that were a little more temporary, and now they're becoming a lot more permanent. So one of the newest ones that opened up is in Orlando at SeaWorld. They refurbished their old Kraken roller coaster. Now it's called Kraken Unleashed and has a whole experience where you can go underwater, dodge different sea creatures, and go through a whole new experience with it. But it's becoming a lot more common, and a lot of theme parks are seeing this as a really great way to have a cost-effective way to refurbish these old rides. Interesting. So new life for old roller coasters via virtual reality. Erin Winnick, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's the end of this week's Babbage. Don't forget to check out our new blog for the podcast at medium.economist.com. You'll find articles relating to what we've discussed in the show and a place for you all to join in the conversation. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.